0: Welcome back to SUMA Observations and Conversations, a podcast by Southern Utah Museum of Art, where we talk to artists, curators, art historians, and staff about what's happening at SUMA. I'm Emily Ronkilyu, SUMA's Director of Marketing and Design, and in this episode, I chat with SUMA's Coordinator of Visitor Experience, Alyssa Thomas, about museum accessibility. We talk about the Americans with Disabilities Act, Breaking Barriers, a statewide accessibility training, and what SUMA is doing to make our space more welcoming and inclusive for all visitors. Join us for this enriching conversation that shares why accessibility is so important for museums. Welcome, Alyssa, to the podcast studio. Um, I know you've been at SUMA for about two years now, and so it's great to finally have you on the show. To get started, for our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you ended up at SUMA?
1: Yeah, of course. So like Emily said, I have been at SUMA for about two years. It was my first big girl job out of college, as some people like to say, and I, I really like that term because I think it's sweet and funny. I'm actually a native of Utah. I was born and raised here. I am was raised in southern Utah, actually, and then I went to the University of Utah up in Salt Lake City, and it's crazy because the first ever art museum I ever went to was the Utah Museum of Fine Art in Salt Lake City. I was not somebody who went to art museums ever growing up, so I totally get that perspective. And I think it's a really interesting topic when it's like, how do we get people to engage with the museum who haven't? Because I was one of those people. And I actually met Jessica, our executive director, while I was at the University of Utah. I was part of a group called ACME, stood for Art Museum Community and Education, and it was a super cool group. It's what really got me involved in the art scene and everything. We had a like Zoom call with Jessica to ask her questions. We had it with a few different people involved in museums and art in Utah. And I remember asking her, like, how do you guys let people know that there's a museum in Cedar City? Because I'm from southern Utah and I had no idea. Which also makes sense because we only opened our current iteration in 2016 and I graduated high school in 2017. So not a ton of overlap. But I remember asking her that. And then when I started working at SUMA, she brought it up, and I was kind of embarrassed. I was (laughs) like, oh, I don't remember you, and I feel kind of mean for asking that, but... I think
0: it's a valid question. I feel like especially, right, having your background being here, like, right, you lived here your whole life, and not having that access to art, and I think it's very valid. Yeah, SUMA was very new in even 2017, and... I think the museum has grown and changed a lot since then. Um, And since it was the Braithwaite Gallery, that, yeah, totally valid question. (laughs) Don't be
1: embarrassed. Yeah, so I was very, very excited to start at SUMA. Um, When I finished my undergrad and everybody was asking that dreaded question of like, what are you gonna do now? Um, I would always answer, I would like to either work at a museum or at a library. So I was so thrilled to start at SUMA. Remind me what you studied in undergrad. So I studied international studies and German. Those were my majors and then an anthropology minor. Okay. So kind of a mixed bag and it was a valid question what I was going to do with it. So I don't blame people for that. This way of serving our community has always really spoken to me and I think it's really important. So I've really loved being at SUMA and doing that and also growing myself just personally and professionally while being here.
0: So can we tell the listeners a little bit more about your role at SUMA? So you're the coordinator of visitor experience. So what does that mean? What is your job?
1: Yeah, that is a great question because that's such a broad term. What is visitor experience really? And the way we kind of define it at SUMA is how visitors experience SUMA when they walk in the doors. That's how I see my role in my department is that in-person experience at the museum. So it starts when they walk in the front doors, and then they see the front desk and all of the wonderful people who work at the front desk. So they're all part of Visitor Experience team. And they'll ask you, hi, how are you doing? And what brings you into the museum? And all those fun questions that sometimes people are curious why we ask them. And the answer to that is it helps us out a lot when we apply for grants, for example. Knowing our demographics and where our visitors are visiting us from let us ask, you know, the city for money or the county for money or the state for money. So they are actually really useful questions that might seem kind of random if you don't know the reasoning behind them. But they are important, so <laughs> we would appreciate if you answer them. Beyond that, we help with different programming um, and tours. We just had a tour this morning that my team helped out with. We yeah. visitor you know, responses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have a comment book right now which is probably going to be transitioning into comment cards. But so we take those comments that we receive and we update them in a spreadsheet so that we can refer to them as qualitative data rather than just the quantitative that we usually have by asking those questions I mentioned earlier. And yeah, just being that face that the visitor sees.
0: Yeah, what I really appreciate about you and your role is that you are this frontline, like you're hearing what people are saying in the gallery but then you're not just keeping it with yourself or with your team that you've done a lot of work internally at Suma to let us know. And for me it's helping or like helpful for the marketing perspective, but I think it's helpful for a lot of other departments as well, just in the sense of we want to know people are enjoying their time at Suma like we're all working towards the same goal and maybe I don't have as much interaction with visitors that you and your team would but that you're able to collect those comments or things that you hear questions that are being asked and we're able to use that to help make sure that the work that the rest of us are doing it helps us like
1: remember how important it is and the impact that we're having on the community yeah thank you I That is a great point, and we've also had a lot of really great feedback from visitors that have played a role in what decisions we make, whether that's comments about our accessibility or just general comments. Um, Feedback from our community influences what we do, so we know that some people might be more sensitive to some subjects than others, so we try to be mindful of that and let people know as they come in that part of our exhibition might contain something that is a sensitive, sensitive. Yeah, a sensitive subject for them. And then they can make their own decision regarding whether or not they want to see that, for example. Um, we have had people mention that there was like an uneven part of the floor in our new media gallery space where we have videos and other things projected. So we were able to, you know, print little signs being like, hey, there's an uneven floor here and a little um, yellow line across the floor so that people could visibly see that. So the visitor feedback is super, super important because we want visitors to have the best experience possible. And who knows better than the visitor what would make their experience better? Yeah. So let's get into that, because
0: originally when you started at SUMA, accessibility wasn't part of your job description in any concrete kind of way. So how did you become involved in these efforts? Like you really are the accessibility champion liaison at SUMA, the person thinking about these things and what we're doing for our visitors especially. How did you become involved in that?
1: It was actually through happy accident almost. It makes total sense for this to be part of my role that I play at the museum. But like you said, it wasn't originally part of it. And it was through the efforts of a former coordinator of learning and experience, another department over at SUMA. And they really pushed for us to go to this accessibility training Yeah, and the training was the one from the state, right, from Utah Division of Arts and Museums? Yeah, um, so it's through the Utah Division of Arts and Museums, and it's called Breaking Barriers. They offer it a couple times every year, and it's open to different institutions all across the state. So this former coordinator, their name was Alana, shout out to Alana, we appreciate you. Um, So they really pushed for us to be a part of that training. They applied for it, and... Then they ended up leaving SUMA, so then it was a question brought to the group who wants to attend this training. So myself and our one of our former assistant directors, um, Carrie Heaps, we ended up participating in that training, and it just really felt like a aha kind of moment where I was like, this is something I should be thinking about in my job because this affects the visitor experience for a lot of visitors. It's one of those
0: things, I think, as a, like, able-bodied person, you're not thinking about a lot of these things. Some things when I even just started at SUMA that were pointed out is, like, our staff entrance only has stairs. If we had a staff member who was in a wheelchair, they would not be able to access the museum through our staff entrance. Or even thinking about our automatic doors and how maybe the placement doesn't make quite a lot of sense <laughs> um, if you're thinking about it. And those are very tangible things, but there's a lot of other things that I, you've done a great job of like researching and trying to find solutions for. Talking more about the training, what were your biggest takeaways from that initial exposure to this?
1: That training was really, really fantastic because it focused so much on the history of the disabled activist movement and also it focused on the current state of disabled activism and what it looks like now. So a lot of the history was really, really eye-opening. It's something that you kind of know but you don't really know where they mentioned how disabled people were also targeted in the Holocaust and that's something people might not know and it is really important because it really highlights how a lot of disabled people have been treated throughout history. And To me, that means it's even more important now to try our very best to really emphasize how we are treating disabled people in our society. And we need to work on improving that continually because it's been a continual problem throughout history how disabled people have been treated and that's just really not okay. And like you said, it's kind of something that we don't think about as able-bodied people. I'm also able-bodied. So it's something that's not on a lot of people's minds And that's something that I think is important for us to do internally, but also externally. There are ways that people are engaging with the museum that brings up some of these ideas that we'll be talking about and kind of plants the seed in their own minds. And I think that's really, really awesome. The other thing that I really liked about the training is that it really, really focused on the activism that disabled activists have done and are doing. So some that I want to highlight are the League of the Physically Handicapped and the sit-ins that they did in New York City that ultimately led to 1,500 jobs being created in New York City for workers with physical disabilities. So they staged a nine-day sit-in and also a three-day sit-in, which if you think about what goes into that, it's really powerful and incredible, and it's a lot of work. And without these activists, a lot of these things wouldn't be passed. And that is the same for the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, which is maybe the biggest one that people know and think about. Some activism that led up to that being created and passed include the Capitol Crawl, as it's known, um, which was a physical demonstration of how inaccessible architecture impacts people with disabilities. So if you're not familiar, a lot of physically disabled people crawled up the steps. So people in wheelchairs were getting out of their wheelchairs and climbing up the steps to show that it simply was not an accessible building for them.
0: That's really enlightening in terms of the history of this. So what's happened
1: since then? So that is a really big question. A lot of really great activism is happening right now and has happened since the ADA passed. A lot of disabled activists are on social media really helping to spread the word. Because we think of the ADA as being concrete and unchangeable, but it's not. And a recent example of this happened in 2018 where the House of Representatives voted to essentially gut the ADA by passing an act which would hamper the enforcement of the law itself. So people would no longer have to really pay attention to having, you know, three feet for people to walk, that kind of thing. Um, And 43 senators voiced opposition to the bill, and it wasn't enacted, but I think this is a really important example of, yes, we have made progress, not as much as we should have made or can make, but even that progress is not set in stone, and there are people who want to take away these rights that disabled activists have fought so hard for. So to me, it's really, really important to keep that in mind, both professionally and personally, that... Disabled people face a future that is more unsure than able-bodied people simply because a lot of the rights that they have are under attack or they are completely up to a set number of people who run our country. What's interesting to me about these conversations is that
0: I think it's very easy for people to see disabled people as, like, othered. And so when it comes to these rights, so these acts, um, these bills. I think, well, it doesn't affect me, but you have a note here that you know accessibility efforts do benefit everyone. That able-bodied people are still benefiting from a lot of these things, whether they know it or not. And also, just to be kind, to human being, you know, these people shouldn't be othered um, in this way. It's not that hard to make them feel welcome and part of our society. And it goes beyond these rules that we need to have. How can we make them feel like they're part of everyone and not this othered group?
1: Right, absolutely. And disabilities are more common than we would think, as well, because one in four Americans self report as having a disability, one in four adult Americans. And that number increases for transgender adults and also indigenous people. Indigenous people in the United States have the highest rate of disability. So 50% of indigenous people self-report having a disability in this country. So it's important to be mindful of that, because even if we ourselves are not disabled, we know people who are disabled in our personal lives. And even if we don't, 25% of American adults are disabled. So it's important to make our spaces accessible because 25 percent of the population is not a minor part of the population that's an important part of the population we should be serving yeah and I think
0: there's a lot too that people maybe don't understand that they very likely whether they know it or not like you're saying everyone knows someone but I think a lot of people maybe don't know That their friends or family maybe has a disability or, like, you know, be classified under this. That, yeah, they're not thinking about it. That they can present as able-bodied or, you know, able to do these things. But there's other things you just don't know about about people.
1: That is an excellent point because... That is entirely true, right? My mother has diabetes, and so she has a disability because of that. And you might not think of diabetes as being a disability, but it is. It affects
0: a lot of things. It affects, Mm -hmm. yeah, eyesight, blood flow, Mm -hmm. like, yeah.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So a disability is defined as anything that limits a major life activity. So that could be eating, walking, sleeping. Those are some obvious ones, but also interacting with your peers, um, learning how you go about your daily life. Just some things that I wanted to mention as examples for disability accommodations that really are useful to everybody would be sidewalk cutouts. So originally disabled activists fought to have sidewalk cutouts because individuals in wheelchairs wouldn't be able to get on sidewalks. Um, And that's actually another really cool story of how people fought for that. I think it was maybe UC Berkeley, but don't quote me on that, where disabled activists actually like had sledgehammers and like completely demolished these um sidewalks and put in sidewalk cutouts themselves. And I think that's so fun. Maybe <laughs> fun's not the right word, but I think that's really, really awesome that they did this and it's obviously made an impact. Yes. It stuck in my mind for sure. Um because sidewalk cutouts, they don't only benefit people who are in wheelchairs. They also benefit people with strollers, for example. Or we at SUMA really love our wagons. so They benefit us when we're taking our wagon across campus. And another one I want to talk about is fidget spinners or fidget tools, which is probably a recent example that we all know, where it was such a major boom. Everybody had them, and now they're so normal, which is fantastic, because a lot of people, a lot of kids, a lot of adults, yeah, we get fidgety sitting for eight hours straight. So, not only do these benefit neurodivergent people, but also neurotypical people. So, I know a lot of teachers have a lot of fidget tools in their classrooms, and that benefits all students across the board.
0: To your point, too, in the notes, which these are the best notes um, that we've had. Thank you, producer Lisa. But, right, as you're talking about these things, these accessibility tools as they're being made more available to the public or we're talking about them we're seeing them more I think it does help people have that less of that othering kind of thing right you're it's no longer seen as unique or only for a specific type of people that it's like yeah everyone's using them in normal practice and I think that does kind of help change this mindset in society
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah Okay, so that's great.
0: We've been talking about accessibility in general and kind of the history of that and what's going on. But so now in your role, what are we doing at Suma to make Suma more accessible?
1: So, we have done quite a few things since we've been focusing on accessibility. But one of the first things we did was actually creating an accessibility statement. So, this statement, I will read it quickly so we all know. Southern Utah Museum of Art is committed to making our museum accessible to all of our visitors. Our goal is to prioritize accessibility in all we do, which includes, but is not limited to, visitor exhibition experience in all community programming. We value your feedback as we are always looking at ways to improve accessibility at SUMA. If you have a specific accommodation request or have an issue with our website, please contact us at our contact information. And we thought it was really important to have that last little bit, especially because we're not perfect. We don't know everything. I for sure don't know everything and I'm constantly learning new things in this regard. So it's really important for people to be able to reach us and say like, hey, I think you could be more accessible in this area or in this way. Because again, the people who know how to make things more accessible for themselves are themselves. It is these disabled visitors who we want to serve So that was one of the first things we did. We wrote that to really just express our intention to be as accessible as possible and to continue increasing accessibility.
0: Yeah, and I know, like, in my role, we've worked on stuff for the website and even, I was like, I don't even know if I've had these conversations with you, but just making, like, our website and our email newsletter, like, more accessible, making sure that people with e-readers can use them, and that's in part from the... SUU Web Services, I think, is doing a really great job making SU's website accessible. And we've also just have a lot of new items available that maybe guests don't know about yet. But do you want to tell us a little bit about new things you've purchased
1: and put together for visitors? Yeah. So we have been making an effort to purchase accommodations specifically for visitors And one example of this is our red-green colorblind glasses that we recently purchased. And these actually were purchased because of a comment a visitor made to us that they couldn't really distinguish the different categories in one of our um, demographic maps that was part of Aisha Lehman's exhibition recently. And that was something I had never thought about. I didn't even consider it looking at that because I'm not colorblind, so it just... I take it for granted. Um, But that visitor told us that, and then we were like, oh, should we purchase red-green colorblind glasses and have these for visitors to check out to make their experience more accessible? Um, So we did end up purchasing a pair, and somebody, it was a really fun interaction I had with a visitor who was like, oh my gosh, I know somebody who's red-green colorblind. I'm going to call them and make them come here. And I was like, oh, I hope they actually work because I'm not colorblind. I can't tell if they work. So she had her friend come and they went and grabbed the glasses and looked at all the stuff and they came back and they were like, it does work. The colors are a little off, but they do work. And so I'm counting that as a win that we now have that accommodation available for individuals who are red, green, colorblind. Let's see. Great. I think we can talk. I love
0: the sensory bags. Let's talk about that for a little bit. So where's, a backpack available for visitors to check out. Tell us what's in that backpack and why those items are in there.
1: Yeah, so we do have a sensory bag available for visitors to check out or they can check out any of the individual items. And again, this was something that was started by Alana, shout out Alana. Um, She had her department put this together originally. So these sensory bags, we had two at one point, now we just have one. Um, so we have headphones for both, we have adult and child sizes. We have sunglasses, again, in both adult and child sizes. Then we have fidget spinners. We have the red-green colorblind glasses included in there. And then we have a sensory guide um, that lets people know if there are any flashing images, for example, or anywhere with a lot of like really harsh lights. So that's included in there so they know and can guide their own experience, maybe avoid areas that might not be the best for them. And the reason behind having these sensory bags, and this is something that we get to explain to visitors pretty often, since a lot of people aren't familiar with the concept, um, is that these bags are for people who might have some sensory sensitivities. So people whom harsh light might affect them or really loud sounds. So we have those available for them to check out, to hopefully maybe mitigate some of these things so that they can have a great experience at the museum.
0: And then I know one of the other items we have available are some wheelchairs. And so I just want to talk about that a little bit, because I think we, at one point, were just like, it's great, we have a wheelchair. And then we learned something, and now we have two wheelchairs. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so we have two wheelchairs now, as you said. One is self-propelled and push, and the other is only push. Um, And I think that's what you're hinting at, is yep. that we only used to have a push wheelchair available.
0: And, yeah, and I don't think anyone really realized. So the difference here is that it has four different wheels and just the handle bars that like, but you have to have someone pushing it. You can't sit in the wheelchair and guide yourself and use it yourself. There aren't the large wheels that mm-hmm. are, yeah.
1: Right, yeah, and that takes away a lot of autonomy so you're reliant on somebody else. You don't have that independence that you're that maybe you want or maybe you're used to. So it was really important for us to have another wheelchair so that people could choose to self-propel themselves. And how did we find that out? I feel like I just showed up one day and there were two wheelchairs
0: and then I learned why because <laughs> I yeah, wasn't paying attention to what the wheelchair looked
1: like or even thinking about those things. You know, I'm actually not sure. That was before my time at the museum, I believe. But yeah, that is something, (laughs) again, that it's like
0: even the intention was there, thinking like, oh yeah, let's have a wheelchair, let's make this successful, let's have these accommodations to then realize later, like,
1: oh, we didn't get it right the first time. And, you know, Mm -hmm. here we are. Yeah, that's important because we're not always going to get it right. But as long as we are working on improving things, I think that's what really counts.
0: Yeah. Um, and then sounds like we have some other things available in the classroom as well. Want we to talk about those?
1: Yeah. So in the classroom, we have um, some accessible tools. We have a lot of programming that use our classroom materials. So we have children's programming, which includes Great Play Day and Wonder Wednesday, where they make a craft. We also have our student program, Sidekicks. They do a lot of different activities and crafts in the classroom that use those materials. So it's important for us to have materials that are accessible. So right now we have some easy grip scissors, um, but I believe that's actually the extent of what we have in our classroom. And that's something that I want to push to increase the amount of accommodations we have in our classroom. So some things I want to look at purchasing include tabletop scissors, for example. So individuals who have one hand are able to use the scissors right? Because if you think about it, normal scissors, you have to hold the paper and cut the paper. But with the tabletop scissors, you wouldn't have that issue. You would be able to cut it independently with one hand. I also want to look at getting tools that help people grip small pencils or paintbrushes, for example. So individuals who lack some fine motor skills, for example, and this would also impact a lot of children who are still, you know, learning to use these kind of tools. So to have those so that people are able to use these tools that we have that are small and finicky and might be difficult to hold for some people. So I'd like to look into getting some of those and actually we're going to be getting a projector in our classroom which is super exciting and hopefully also a computer in there. So I want to look at either getting a microphone in the classroom so that people can have closed captioning for their presentations or just making sure that everybody knows that that is something you can do with presentations. Yeah,
0: I think that's something that I have learned recently within the last year two years, thinking about presentations and audio accessibility. And um, even it happened recently. Someone was like, oh, I'm fine. I don't need a microphone. And I'm always like, use the microphone. It makes it just easier for everyone to hear. Or yeah, if we're using video presentations, we can feed in the closed captionings things like that that people aren't thinking. They're like, it's a small enough space. I can project. I'm a loud person, and that's not enough for some people. Um, so just trying to get people to think about those things when they're setting up for their events or their workshops, classes, mm-hmm. that that clear audio makes a big, big difference.
1: Absolutely. And that's a, something that I also have been paying more attention to recently because my partner, he has hearing loss, Um, his hearing was damaged, so he is deaf in one of his ears, maybe only partially, I don't know the specifics, but whenever I'm with him, we have subtitles on movies and all of these different things, and before we met, I wasn't really paying attention to that, but if we think about it, SU has a large population of students who probably have some sort of hearing loss or hearing disability, because we have such a large population of students who were in the military, Um, and that's why my partner has hearing loss, so a lot of our non-traditional students this could definitely really benefit
0: um, so another thing that I know that you've done for the museum is kind of pushing for more trainings for staff um, whether it's our team leads or visitor experience or anyone on staff so can you talk to us about the trainings maybe we've had and or trainings that are on your
1: list mm-hmm. yes absolutely so right now um, my Team, the visitor experience team is trained on accessibility and on what accommodations we offer. So, that is a training that all of VE has had and knows. So, that training goes over to how to talk to visitors if you want to let them know that we have accommodations um, or how to respond if they ask for accommodations. And then also, specifically, what accommodations we do offer. So, right, we've mentioned the wheelchairs, we've mentioned the sensory bags. Um, those kind of things. I do also have a training put together that's um, general and pretty broad for all of staff. I've never actually given it. It just always kind of falls on the back burner, unfortunately. But I want to push for that and maybe do that at a staff meeting sometime soon. And then we recently, some team leads went to an accessibility training here at SUU. So I think it's been great how We've tried to keep different trainings that SUU does on our radar, right? Jessica Kinsey, our executive director, she's the one who pointed this one out to me and to the rest of the team leads and was like, this could be a really great thing for you all to go to. Um, She also pointed out a lot of different trainings to me personally. Another one that has to do with accessibility is one that was through the legal department here at SUU, which talked about people's legal rights. Um, It mainly focused on students' legal rights in a... university setting, right? We're at a university. But a lot of it was really applicable to people in general, but then also to SUMA because a lot of our workers are student workers and student staff, and they have rights. Um, disabled students have rights both in the classroom setting and in the setting at SUMA.
0: Yeah, we, yeah. like you need an accessible place to work.
1: Right, we are we're accommodating for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. We're required to have accommodations for students if they disclose to us that they have a disability, yeah. And, and it's not as cut and dry mm-hmm. as
0: maybe in the classroom where, yeah, you can get, I think students know a lot of, or and I don't actually know if students know a lot about that, but in terms of what's offered on campus and working um, with the resource center to get uh, like individual learning plan or accommodations for test taking, note taking, Um, things like that, it is very easy to see it through the framework of classes and testing and all of that, where maybe the workplace is a little bit different. Um, So how are we adjusting and still making those accommodations work for their place of employment?
1: Yeah, definitely. And those accommodations are going to vary so much individual by individual. So again, reiterating that the person who knows the best what they need is the person themselves. So if we had somebody request accommodations, we would really want it to be guided by them and what they need and what would help them the best.
0: So any kind of future goals for the museum?
1: What would you,
0: in the dream, <laughs> the Barbie dream house that is Zuma, what, um, what are things that you'd like to see, see us add?
1: Yeah, so one actually came up earlier in the discussion, and that is our automatic doors which Emily mentioned are silly and they are because we are accessible. We do have automatic doors, but the reason it's silly is because the ramp that you take to get up to the museum rather than the stairs, it puts you out on the South side of our vestibule and our South side doors are not automatic. So you have to go all the way around to the other entrance, to the North side entrance where we do have automatic doors and then you can come into the museum. So it's just like a weird zigzag that just doesn't really make a lot of sense if you're thinking about it practically So that is something that is on my wish list. Accessible doors for the south side entrances and then also for our bathrooms because I cannot tell you how often we sit at the desk and watch people struggle with our bathroom doors because they are so heavy. They're heavy and big. Heavy, they're huge. They reach all the way up to the ceiling. They're so tall. Um, So we see a lot of children struggle with that. We see a lot of elderly people struggle with that. We see people just all the time having a hard time with those doors. So that is like my dream. And it might be a reality sometime in the near future. Um, Our executive director just said that she wanted to push to do that. And we've been looking into cost and we're going to look into grants and different things to hopefully fund that. So that is something I wanted to mention that I find really important and really beneficial is that we have a supportive team at SUMA. We have a supportive director who wants to push for these different things to make our space accessible.
0: Yeah. But if any listeners want to <laughs> donate money, you know, to help with our accessibility efforts, I'm sure it would be welcomed.
1: It absolutely would. And I want to also mention that accessibility, our accessibility efforts did not start with me, right? I've mentioned that a couple of times. Our exhibitions team pays attention to the ADA and make sure our exhibitions are physically accessible and our graphic designers have been always thinking about contrast and legibility in fonts. So this is not something that starts or ends with me. It's a full team thing that we all have been and continue to work on. Yeah I think we've been
0: talking about just the museum in general and things that are applied across the board but you're right we have been um, intentional when it comes to our exhibitions and trying to make sure that we have large print options for labels and um, like you said, in the layouts meetings, it's every time you know, making sure that there's three feet of walkway, whether it's when we're moving the walls or just what objects are placed in the exhibition. And in addition to that, um, and even audio guides. So right, you've been working directly with Lisa to make sure that all of the text in the exhibitions are also available um, in other ways.
1: Yeah. Um, you are very kind when you say I've been directly working with Lisa. Lisa took that on. She's a superstar. She did that. I really want to highlight that she really. But it came. That out it came our- from
0: you and Alana. Like right. Like it wasn't the marketing team just saying, "Hey, we have nothing to do. Let's just make audio guides for all of our text." That it was a cross-departmental collaborative piece that we've been doing for a couple. I guess like only in two years. I think the first one we did was for the Andy Warhol Billy Shank exhibition in January of 2022. Crazy. Yes. It's like
1: by the time this comes out that will be 2 years ago. That is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um But yeah, I love that you mentioned that it's cross departmental because a lot of things we do are by nature cross departmental. None of us, you know, I live on our own islands. Um
0: Yeah. My philosophy has been, especially like when we're setting up the base camp and things like that, is that at the end of the day, we're a small museum, we're a small team. There's no reason that we need to be siloed and just all working on our own individual projects, that I like this healthy energy and, like, interest in what, you know, other people are thinking about um, because at the end of the day, we all just want to have a space, have a museum that is fun, engaging, and accessible for our community.
1: Absolutely. At the heart of it, that is our goal, is we want to provide this service for our community. We want people to come to the museum and see what we have up, and whether they love it or hate it, we want them to see it. Yeah, yeah, and we can't do that alone. We all have to do it together.
0: Okay, so I know I listed off a couple things um, for exhibitions, but I'm sure you know a lot more, so can you tell us a little bit more um, about what other accommodations we've been doing?
1: I wanted to bring up our large print options one more time because that was something that came up from a visitor asking us. They were like, "Oh, we can't really see we can't read the labels for the exhibition, whether that's you know the artist label that tells you the name and the title or our longer texts that tell you a little bit about the work. So that was something they were that a visitor suggested, and then I ran to Becky, Becky Bloom, our assistant director over curatorial affairs and was like, hey, um, I know that you have the text still available. Is there a way we can do that in a large print option? So then Becky took that and ran. So again, just that cross-departmental thing where visitor experience got that comment and directed it, funneled it to the department that could help us out. The reason that large print options are so important are because individuals who might have low vision can't always see smaller fonts. So this specifically affects a lot of older people. If you think about older people, they're the demographic that are starting to lose some of their vision, some of their hearing. So a lot of these accessibility efforts and accommodations also go to impact them. And then I mentioned that we always are ADA compliant because our director of curatorial affairs and our exhibitions manager are fantastic at making sure that we are accessible in that way.
0: Well, and so. I know that's coming from their own personal experiences as well, that they are able to bring that mindset into their job, you know, working with family, like living with family members that are in wheelchairs or using um, other walking tools. So. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, yes, I wanted to highlight how fantastic various staff members are. But yeah, like you said, they're drawing on their personal experience to do that. Not only because it's, you know, we legally have to, but because they want to. They want it to be accessible, whether that's for people they know in their personal lives or just any random visitor that comes into our museum. We mentioned our audio guides. We also had a Spanish version available for a recent exhibition, which I thought was super cool. And it made me think about how we are offering our accommodations at the desk. So if you've never been in the museum, we have a little sign that says, check out our sensory bag or one of our wheelchairs. And thinking of that Spanish audio guide, and then also going into our Day of the Dead celebration, I was like, "Hmm, I only have this in English, so that's not super accessible for people who don't speak English or who English is not their first language." I reached out to Kelly Myers. She is on Kelly Meyer McGann. Her full name. Love her. She's great. She speaks Spanish. Um, so I reached out to her and was like, "Could you maybe help me out with something like this?" And she said yes, she would love to help translate that so we have a Spanish and English version, and she got help from some of the faculty professors here at SUU, her Spanish professors, to make sure that everything was accurate and read fine. So now we do have that sign available in English and Spanish because accommodations don't stop with disabled people, or accessibility doesn't just stop with disabled people. Um, It goes, you know, across the board. We want people who don't speak English to be able to have these accommodations as well the last thing I want to mention in that regard is that we have closed captioning available anytime we do have videos playing so that individuals know what videos are saying even if they can't hear making sure that content is available and accessible for everybody regardless of their physical abilities
0: so I think in closing we've shared a lot about what we've been doing what maybe is on the horizon and priorities for Alyssa in the museum. But just reiterate, why is all of this important?
1: Well, I think it is important for a number of reasons. The first reason we could name is that you should care about other people and want them to be able to participate in society, whether that's somebody you know or somebody that you've never even heard about. You should just point blank care about other people but that might be you know, simplifying the issue too much and maybe playing on people's emotions too much. The other reason I want to name is that we, any of us, any able-bodied person could become disabled at any point in our life, whether that's you know, through an accident where we lose a limb or whether it's through age and we lose our vision just through aging. So it's important for both a selfless and a selfish reason. You should care about other people, but you should also invest in these efforts in the case that you become disabled.
0: Well, I just wanna thank you again for joining us on the podcast. And you're a little nervous to talk about it, um, but you did great. And you're doing a lot of really great work at SUMA and it's showing and I think our visitors can tell,
1: SUMA staff can tell. So thank you for everything you're doing with accessibility. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a super cool opportunity. I've never done anything like this, so I was a little nervous. And I just want to clarify that I am not an expert, so I could have gotten things wrong, and I'm sure I will get things wrong in the future, but like I said, I think the intention and working towards making things more accessible is where my heart really is, and what I think is important for SUMA to be doing. That's awesome.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of SUMA Observations and Conversations. Accessibility efforts are so important because they really do impact us all. I know I learned a lot and enjoyed talking with Alyssa. Keep having your own observations and conversations, and I'll see you next time. This podcast is made possible by partnership with SU's radio station, Thunder 91, and is edited and produced by Lisa Hardy, SUMA Digital Media and PR associate.